the help that we all want and even need in our lives is to be listened to and acknowledged. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need something fixed. I have a saying that when you work with people, do they need sympathy or a solution? There's a lot of people out there that they just need sympathy. They need a sympathetic, supportive, listening ear. And look at how we feel that right now. We're feeling the magic of it. You're not solving a problem for me. I'm not solving a problem for you. But there's something magical in just talking about things. Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's featured message. Hi, it's Mike with the Portage County Safety Council. I'm here with Kelly Youngkins from Family and Community Services. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Kelly, welcome back. We're here to talk about anxiety. But before we get into anxiety, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the agency. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. So I am one of the clinical program supervisors at Valley Counseling Family and Community Services, and I oversee the clinical mental health program out of the children's office. We have a variety of community mental health services and programming. And in addition, I have opened Kelly Youngkin's Consulting, where I do a variety of educational workshops and one-on-one coaching. We definitely appreciate all your expertise here. So Kelly, it's the million-dollar question of the day. What is anxiety? Anxiety in a nutshell is anticipation of a future threat. Whether that threat is real or perceived, anxiety is the cognitive, emotional, and physiological experience that we have when we anticipate a threat. Let's sit on that for a second. Because I think in our culture, we've come so accustomed just of, I guess we tie anxiety to kind of nervousness Mm -hmm. and not being able to sit still. But it is definitely attached to fear. Can you go in deeper on that? Yeah. And, you know, fear is an emotional response to a real or perceived imminent threat. But fear is just the emotional component. That's the emotional component of anxiety. But there's also a cognitive component to anxiety, which is where people may have intrusive, racing, distressing thoughts related to a real or perceived threat. And then in response to the whether someone is experiencing cognitive anxiety and or emotional responses, your body also responds to anxiety physiologically. And that's where you'll you'll see somebody experiencing some of those telltale signs, whether they're outwardly or inwardly, such as maybe some nervous type behavior, maybe tapping of hands or feet. They might start to to sweat. Internally, they may feel like their heart is in their throat or they experience a rapid heartbeat and just a general sense of unease. But there are cognitive, emotional and physiological components to experiencing anxiety. This is really interesting and not really what we had planned to talk about today, but I'm really glad we went this direction already. In one of our safety council meetings, we had a chiropractor named Dr. Aubrey Jones come and present to us. And she just had, you know, the the diagrams of the skeletal nervous system and the organs and all that. And she pointed at the diagram and she talked about if you have stress and anxiety, and I think that her topic was stress. If you have stress and anxiety, its impact on your nervous system actually prevents your organs from working at 100% capacity. And she said, literally, no matter how relaxed you try to be mentally, emotionally, probably even meditatively for some folks, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're under stress or anxiety, 
your body can't heal itself to its full potential like it normally can. We all understand how stress could affect health to some degree, right? We've heard it you know, for years. Stress is kind of the root of all sickness kind of thing. But there's really this physiological effect that I don't think we really take into consideration, do we? Not at all. Although my husband is a uh, strength and conditioning coach and he, he owns an athletic facility in Ohio. And he and I have a lot of these conversations about how reg- how important regulating the, the nervous system is, not only for your strength and performance, maybe in an athletic or exercise component, but we talk a lot about how that helps regulate the nervous system to manage your mental and emotional health. So it's a big topic in our household when it comes down to the nervous system. And anxiety is definitely one of those cognitive and emotional states that can activate your nervous system responses. And if your if your anxiety is heightened for a prolonged period of time, you're absolutely correct, as that chiropractor had mentioned, that your body systems will be impacted, usually in a negative way. I heard a gentleman speak at Ohio Safety Congress, you know, hand me four or five years ago. And he had some interesting neurological data about the effects of being bullied mm-hmm. on the neurological system. And it goes right along with what we're talking about. He used this example to help people understand it. And I, th- I think it really kind of sunk in deep with me and really hit home. And it's make me think about this. And again, it's a little off topic than what we planned, but I think this is great information that you don't hear too much. As he said, the way our electrochemical system works in our body is... It gets triggered by stimulus, right? That fight or flight or freeze kind of mechanism in our body, in our brains. And he said, you know, in the beginning of time when we're cavemen and women and we're running from wolves, it was a really important for survival. He's like, but the problem with it is with modern technology, he said, you have these these things, and I know like called mirror neurons that actually reflect and, and make you think that whatever you're seeing on a video or whatever it is in real life or on, you know, movies, different things, your body can't tell the difference. Your body actually responds. And that's why, you know, you play Mario Kart and you lean into a turn, even though you have a controller, (laughs) right? And then you you watch a scary movie, like one of the terrible Saw movies or Friday the 13th back in the day, whatever it is. And uh, I'm just dating myself there. And uh, you (laughs) feel that real terrifying, scary feeling. But he says, you know, back in the day when we'd run from wolves, we actually burned the adrenaline Yes. Cortisol and these chemicals that would our body would produce to help us survive. But now we're getting overstimulated because we're seeing so many movies. We have so many lights and so many, you know, blue lights, electronics, and just sounds and all these different things we didn't have for thousands of years. And so our bodies are literally getting overstimulated, and those chemicals are in our body, and we're the least active we've ever been in history. So instead yeah. of like running from a wolf, we're sitting on a couch eating popcorn while we're getting stimulated through the scary movie. Yes. And he talks about those chemicals just sitting in your body not getting burned off through physical activity because we're not very active as a species anymore, right? Because of modern yeah. technology. And they sit there and they actually, it's like this relentless cycle that continually feeds itself. Yes. So what role do you think modern technologies has had on mental health and especially anxiety? Oh, I absolutely think that it's had a huge impact and we continue to see the impact that it's having on people's mental and emotional well-being evidenced by the clients that are coming in stating social media and or just technology as being a stressor, whether it being that it's, you know, monopolizing a lot of their time or how they spend time in space in their relationships or how it's impacting 
they're functioning at home, school or work. And it's definitely it's definitely impacting them in a negative way. Um, as you watch and listen to people talking about how they're trying to moderate their consumption and develop a healthy relationship and set those good boundaries up, because like you said earlier, our modern society is experiencing a plethora of real and or perceived threats that are exponentially greater than what historically we had before when it was a non-modernized uh, society. So that's what leads us into the potential, the greater potential for a greater number of people experiencing anxiety-based disorders or even syndromes is because of all the real or perceived threats that may be negatively impacting their functioning. And what I mean by negatively impacting their functioning is it's their anxiety that their thoughts, their feelings, and their physiological responses that they're experiencing, it's impacting their ability to work, to parent, to, you know, function in healthily in relationships, to move about in their community in a healthy and productive way, because they're experiencing symptoms or maladaptive behaviors that's changing the way they're functioning as a result of their anxiety. So I don't know if there's a number you could give and you don't have to, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot there, but from my experience, there seems to be a lot of people that struggle with anxiety that also have physical health issues. And yes. so I really want to, I really want to stay here for a second because I think it's something we separate, but if, yes. if we've ever struggled with that, or if we have friends or family that have struggled with that, it's easy to come in and maybe even accuse them of being a hypochondriac or just, mm -hmm. oh, there's something always wrong. But that could really be a sign of anxiety, can't it? Yeah. And and so when somebody is hyper, like for it, let's take the example of hypochondria. You know, that is somebody that is probably has an elevated uh, level of anxiety symptoms, whether it's cognitive and emotional. They may be hyper aware to their body systems functioning and their body's alerting them, whether that's real or perceived to a potential concern. And I like that you said that um, you recognize how those general medical conditions are linked to psychiatric conditions, because what I would say is the number of people that are experiencing anxiety symptoms, syndromes, or full-blown disorders are probably pretty significantly high because of the amount of people that have general medical problems, because of the prolonged chronic stress and deregulation of their nervous system. So I think that there's a lot of people out there that experience a lot of anxiety symptoms, whether they are aware of them or not. There's also a, a category of people out there. I'm sure some people will recognize this in themselves. High functioning anxiety um, is also a thing where people have learned to operate quite well with a lot of anxiety. Um, and that could be it could be detrimental to them or it could be positive in the way that they operate their life. But yeah, it's definitely, I find it to be highly prevalent. I think it gets mislabeled. People think they're hypochondriacs or they think that they have OCD and it's not quite the label of what they're experiencing. But I definitely would anticipate that anxiety is significantly high out there due to the chronic stress level and uh, general medical conditions. I know we talked about this in our last interview we did on depression, but I want to put this out there as well for people that may not have heard that episode. But probably 10, 12 years ago, I was teaching a class for an adult education department, and I think it was like work readiness kind of thing, and I'm up on the 
try to race board, you know, talking about how to put your resume together kind of thing. And um, I started having like severe anxiety where I just kind of wanted to run out of the room. Now, I had no history of it, but I recognized what it was because I'm like, it was getting hard to breathe. And, I, and I'm like, what's going on with me? And then um, I had it for, I dealt with it for just, you know, real brief moment. I went to the doctor and did some blood work because so I was like, you know what? I have insurance. I might as well use it and just kind of see what's going on with my body anyways. And I, I wasn't sure how to navigate the mental health world. So I was looking at getting into it, but I never did. I got blood work done and found out I had a slow thyroid. And without even trying to deal with the anxiety, just taking medication for my thyroid, after three weeks of that, the anxiety disappeared. It could go either way, can it? It's like the chicken or the egg for some people. You know, that general medical conditions, such as the one that you just mentioned, a thyroid, that would be something that I would encourage people when they are experiencing a high level of symptoms, such as anxiety, that they go to their primary care doctor and get that blood work like you did. That's awesome that you did that to take a look at systemically, because general medical conditions can often mimic or exacerbate psychiatric symptoms. And then the other way around, people that have a genetically predisposed mental health issue, their mental health symptoms and chemical functioning can impact their general medical conditions. So it's definitely a symbiotic relationship that taking care of one can definitely help take care of the other. And so it's important that people out there have a good relationship with the medical system and and take care of themselves so that they can try to prevent it or at least prevent their symptoms or symptom presentation from getting worse into a full-blown disorder. Or if they're genetically predispositioned to have a mental health disorder, that they get the proper care to treat it so that they can maximize their life potential, so that they can get out there and live their life and have good relationships and pursue their joy and their meaning without their mental health issue holding them back. This is such good information because I rarely ever hear anyone talk about this. And so why I'd like to bring it up is because if you're struggling with anxiety and you still wrestle with the stigma, well, I don't want to be crazy or have a mental health, whatever people process. I've heard many people tell me those different things. And Mm -hmm. so it could be a physical health issue. And also for the people that may be judging someone struggling with anxiety, you know, like if I'm an employer, for example, and, you know, the old school way of thinking would be, well, you just need to get over and get your job done and keep your personal life, your personal life, not bring that right. to work. And they, they do this stuff not realizing that there's literally physical issues that can be caused from anxiety or yeah. anxiety can be caused from physical issues. So I'm so glad we were able to kind of work through some of that today. That's a huge thing. But I want to shift now to the cognitive part that you talked about. Now, you said anxiety is fear of a threat or at least a perceived or real threat. And so how much does how we interpret our everyday life experiences play a role in that? I'm thinking this model I learned years ago was, you know, we have our life experiences and then it's like a math formula. And then we have our interpretation of what happened to us. And those interpretations, after we've had several different experiences, you know, like I always say, like uh, Mary dated a guy that cheated on her, dated another guy, cheated on her, maybe happened a third time interpretation. He's a pig. He's a pig. He's a pig, right? After a while, there starts to be a, and this could apply for anything. This isn't a stigma against women or anything, but that after a while, there's a perception that all men, it'd be easy for someone to start to see that all men are like this, right? Yes. And so that now affects all the relationships and those interpretations when they're repeatable, 
evolve into perceptions and perceptions can become belief system, which directly affects our behavior, behavior, right? And so if we're convinced that, you know, the opposite sex or whatever, whatever the case would be in any situation, really, whatever the threat may be, whatever the threat may be. Yes. Thank you. Or if I have a belief system from my experience that, you know, going through, you know, stuff that I went through as a kid through some of the sexual abuse and things I went through, there was moments where I realized that if I got close to someone, there was always tied to some some negative consequence was coming down the road or some kind of betrayal or backlash. And I've known several people that went through some physical abuse as kids and in their adult life, they had this unhealthy need to control everything because of the lie that they, the, in their belief system, they bought into, if I'm not in control, I'm going to get hurt again. Right. And so mm-hmm. we have these experiences and then we interpret what happened to us and you can have, you know, twins with the same father, alcoholic dad, one will never touch alcohol, one will become an alcoholic, right? Just yeah. as like a scenario. And they have the same exact experience, but the interpretation of it was different. And so it kind of changed their path forward. So how much of anxiety do you think is actually how we're processing our, those life and interpreting those life experiences on a day-to-day basis? I absolutely believe that there's a high prevalence of what you're really talking about is the um, classic nature-nurture debate. And so you have people that are predispositioned, you know, genetically inclined to experience anxiety states. But then you also have that habituation, those generalizations that you're talking about that get formed by the individual in relationship to their environment that become generalized. And that's what you're talking about is they have they be, they they connect a generalized response to those real or perceived fears. And what happens is that's how you also help determine whether their reactivity to their real or perceived threat, so their anxiety presentation is appropriate given the stressor of the situation and developmentally appropriate based on who they are and their age, or if the response is becoming of clinical level. And so what that would mean is that these individuals that have a diagnosable anxiety disorder, they're typically overestimating the danger in the situations that they're either consciously or subconsciously perceiving. And so, you know, whatever the, the threat that they fear or are perceiving or maybe trying to avoid, it's disproportionate to the actual stressor. And so, you know, a a common example might be the body exhibiting panic attacks. Okay. So panic attack isn't an act, isn't an actual disorder, but it's a feature of anxiety where the body can become habituated to a sense of real or perceived fear and it physiologically responds. If you've ever, ever had somebody talk about a panic attack, it comes on seemingly unexpectedly. And they experience a lot of physiological symptoms. All of a sudden, their heart is in their throat. Their their heart is racing. They're trembling. They're sweating. They might find it hard to breathe. They might be hyperventilating. That is a that's a panic attack. And that is some that is an example of somebody who suffers from an anxiety disorder, usually stemming from some type of connection that got habituated over a period of time. Because typically, anxiety disorders can start in early childhood and then progress. But anxiety disorders can also start, you know, in adulthood. But if they do, there's a there's there's a decent chance that they're probably predisposition. So 
something that might help people out there know is when they once they realize what the symptoms are, they if they have their parents that are hopefully, you know, maybe still alive, they might be able to recognize that their parents also suffered from anxiety like symptoms or conditions. And that helps them recognize it in themselves and understand what's happening and then hopefully reach out for help. That brings up our next question. I know we're running out of time, but I really want to try to fit these couple things in. And so I know you could probably be more descriptive because you're such a treasure of information, but I want to make sure we get in there and able to help promote what you do at FCS and different things as well. But with all the, it, you know, anxiety is so complicated. And we're just talking about these different faucets and we could probably go on for another hour, really. And so if someone's sitting there going, how do I know if I have it? I get nervous sometimes or maybe I get panicky. Like, how does someone recognize if they have anxiety? That's a great question. And I'm glad that you asked. Typical general signs of anxiety are this the foundational worry, the preoccupation with excessive worry about a situation or issue. You also have it, um, it manifests itself in trouble sleeping. It also may manifest itself in how people perceive the world or behave in it. They might have trouble eating, sleeping, functioning in their relationships. They may avoid certain people, places, and things. Those are some of the hallmark symptoms of anxiety, regardless if it's anxiety in general, like generalized anxiety, separation anxiety, mutism, things like that. There's a variety of anxiety-based disorders, but it's really the hallmark is, you know, excessive worry and preoccupation, trouble sleeping, a nervousness, or trying to plan ahead and prevent things can sometimes get out of proportion. Now, that's really helpful because I I know actually a few people that struggle with that. If their schedule gets off track, they get really stressed out. Like it's really an issue for them. You know yeah, what I mean? It, it's more than the average person would be where yeah. it, it's like it kind of ruins their day if their schedule's a little off. So now that helps a lot. So here, here's the next question, though. How can we prevent it? If we see ourselves, <laughs> maybe I'm starting to see some early warning signs that I'm starting to develop in some kind of anxiety issue. What can we do to help prevent it and pull ourselves back? So prevention can be tricky because if there is a genetic pre- predisposition, you, you may not be able to prevent yourself from having a mental health disorder, but you can certainly prevent its exacerbation to where or its impact. And how we do that is first by education. Helping people like through podcasts like these recognize what the disorder is or what the symptomology is, awareness, promoting self-awareness, helping people learn themselves so that they can recognize what symptoms they're experiencing and what might be creating that. And then the second piece is learning the coping strategies or health strategies that is going to help them. And that's a variety of things, whether it's through seeing a medical doctor, seeing a counselor taking good care of eating, sleeping, and, you know, your overall wellness, movement and joy, taking care of your overall wellness is absolutely going to help any issue in in getting better. Do you have any tips for like, if we recognize certain triggers, like, you know, if I spend too much time on social media or something, I, I notice I may deal with it a little more, or if that makes sense, is it, you know, maybe we can unplug our phones or put our phones in the other room and, or shut them off for a while, any kind of thing like that? So the first step would be first recognizing what people's triggers are. And sometimes people struggle in knowing that about themselves. I have a a quote about you can't know yourself by yourself. So sometimes having another person like help you learn what those triggers are, that can be helpful because then once you know what the triggers are, 
then that's how somebody like me, a, a clinical professional, can then help you with a, a strategy of what can you do about them? What does that look like? Whether it's, you know, cutting cold turkey away from certain triggers or learning how to set better boundaries or management around it or learning how to work with it effectively instead of just avoiding it altogether. So let me ask you this, Kelly. How do we know if we need help? I love that question because sometimes that could be really confusing for people. Of How do I know when I need help? And my first general answer to that is I think we all know intuitively. We just don't listen to that little voice that's telling us, hey, I think I could use some help and then allowing ourselves to need some help. So I do think that that is there for some people. Probably the more recognizable sign is that when what you're experiencing, your symptoms and how you're living your life, if it's inhibiting you in any way from functioning at your best, that's usually a pretty good sign that we need help. And help doesn't have to be some long, intensive, drawn out process. Sometimes help is only just a, a few doses of an intervention. So if we can have somebody if, if reach out for help, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. But recognizing that things are not okay and that they're not functioning at their best, it's impacting their home life, their work life, their relationships, their happiness and well-being. That's a pretty good sign, especially if it's gone on for four or more weeks. And, you know, definitely if it's been going on for several months and things are still not getting better. I really like what you said in our last interview when you talked about mental health checkups. I think it's such a brilliant concept that needs to be promoted all over the place. So I'm going to include it here as well. But you said specifically, you know, most of us go to the dentist twice a year. Everyone gets a free visit every year if you have any kind of health insurance, right? And yes. so many of us do, we'll go to the doctor once a year and just do our annual checkup. But very few, if any, do that for mental health. I know. It really stumps me, honestly. I mean, especially when commercial insurance and, and even other Medicaid insurances promote well visits. I am really promoting out there the concept for the mental and medical system to adopt the concept of a mental health checkup. I think it has exponential benefits that if we had a, a regular practice of people checking in with a mental health provider, that we could really move towards a wellness model and a preventative model instead of such a reactionary model, a crisis model. And so what a mental health checkup would look like is setting up at least a yearly visit with a mental health professional, whether it's online or in person, to do just a mental status exam, see how they're doing, assess their domains of functioning. You'd be looking at what their how's their home operating, their their work life, their education, their relationships, their overall purpose of of joy and satisfaction, and and their general medical health. And because when you take that overall comprehensive picture of how a person's doing, you're able to really pinpoint how well are they functioning and are they at risk for experiencing a mental health syndrome or issue? And if they're at risk, we can then teach people that and then point them in the right direction rather than it gets to the point where they're absolutely suffering. They've experienced losses real and intangible losses as a result of their mental health issue impacting their life, we could just have such a profound effect on preventative medicine and a wellness model. And I love this conversation so much. I'm having so much fun and it's so interesting to me. Again, I wish we had another hour to go through everything. We're running out of time, unfortunately. So Kelly, if someone is interested in reaching out to a family community services, Maybe they want to look into some mental health or some counseling services that the agency provides. How do they get a hold of you? 
Oh, absolutely. Family and community service is one of the things that I love about this agency is its depth and its breadth and how much, how many services and help programs that we have. All it takes is looking us up on the internet, family and community services, and clicking on a link or giving us a call at any of the numbers of our locations. We have a variety of locations where we provide mental health services. And for the employers listening to this, they're listening to this like, man, I need to get Kelly to come talk to my staff. Is there anything available out there that you could do for them? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because I love doing this. I love promoting mental health awareness and education. And so I have a Kelly Youngkins Consulting. You can look me up on online, kellyyunkinsconsulting.com. And one of my favorite things to do is to travel around to companies that want to provide some mental health awareness and education. And we can tailor the help strategy that your team or agency needs. And I really enjoy doing that. Kelly, thank you so much. I know we're out of time, but we're going to be doing an entire series that's going to be going on throughout the entire month of May. Thank you so much for coming out and, and just allowing us to pick your brain and learn more about mental health during Mental Health Awareness Month. Thank you so much. Oh, Mike, I can't thank you enough. You know, this is right up my alley talking about mental health. So thank you as always for having me. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you again. Awesome. Everybody out there listening, thank you so much for tuning in this. Do what you can to take this information to help yourself, your loved ones, and even your coworkers or the employees that may serve under you. So thank you all for listening out there. Everybody be safe. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.